Okay, and hello and welcome to Spread Your Wings and Fly, the first uh, edition of the Phoenix podcast. I'm Phil Dale, Creative Director of the Phoenix Film and Theatre School, and this is our podcast, which hopefully will become a monthly instalment. And the idea being that I'm going to speak to an alumni from Phoenix, somebody who has been part of the organization in years gone by and has gone on to create a professional career within the industry. And as our very first guest on this podcast, I am absolutely delighted to welcome Mr. Michael Fentiman. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hello, Phil. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. So We're both wearing shorts here, listeners. We are indeed. It's a hot day. So just give us a little bit of a, a recap on what you've kind of done recently. What sort of things have you been up to, just so people know the sort of things that you've been involved in? Global pandemic. Uh, I a uh, lot of Zooms, a lot of <laughs> quizzes. Uh, no, I'd, uh, so last sort of three or four years, so I've been quite lucky in the last sort of five years, I've done like four West End shows. Which uh, ones were they? I have done, the last four years I've done, I was, I've done uh, The Line of Witch in the Wardrobe was at the Gillian Lynn Theatre, where Cats was back in the day. It used to be called The New End. I did, uh, in the same year, I had Amelie, which was nominated for Olivier Awards and a Grammy, Best Album. Best Musical Theatre album and uh, The Windsors and then a few years back from that before the pandemic I directed The Importance of Being Honest at the Vaudeville um, so those shows coming up I'm about to do a new play about Martin Bashir I'm going to be remounting a one person show for the Edinburgh Lyceum about Jacqueline Hyde uh, taking Amelie to Korea Lying the Witch internationally and also to Birmingham you know we can do a run at Birmingham I also do events I'm doing something for Latitude I'm kind of very busy. Busy really man. Lucky. Been really lucky. So, Michael, just first of all, tell us a little bit about your background with regards to Phoenix. We've known each other for well, many so, years Well, now. so, I think I was about 15, 16, doing uh, amateur theatre. And there was this sudden buzz in the company. And it was like, oh, uh, you know, Phil Dale's in tonight. And uh, I was like, ooh. You know, uh. And uh, this guy came in with a with a branded gilet and I thought I, I was I, I was in love <laughs> and got to do some I was theatre with, with, with Phil in quite big shows I did one of the pantos there and this was a Harlow Playhouse Harlow Playhouse yeah. yeah I did panto and did some stuff and I remember being kind of thought this was really cool the ambition of this is really cool and then kind of got sucked into the energy of those opportunities but also sort of Phil's ability to kind of kind of give those opportunities without much questioning actually for years and then when I left university Phil carried on taking punts and so in the end I was only 21 and Phil offered me to do the pan uh, 22 and Phil offered me to direct one of the pantos and you know one of my early directing experiences was uh, directing a tour of East that Phil was in but Phil commissioned that you know I think everyone else around at the time said this guy isn't experienced enough to be given this. And, and, and I remember that time there's a real resistance yeah, to it. Yeah, that's true. And, and, was. And, and Phil didn't resist it. And Phil, was like, <laughs> Phil as in me. <laughs> Phil was in uh, this character who we shall talk about as though he's not in the room. But yeah, yeah, no, and, and you took a punt. And really that was Phoenix for me. It was, it was, it was someone giving you opportunities and taking punts. And that was really formative to be thrown into opportunities which you learn from just really wanted to talk through how you managed to make that transition from being 
a student at Harlow College and being interested in theatre to becoming a professional? Because I think that's one of the things that a lot of people struggle with when they reach the age of about 17, 18. They're suddenly, you know, they're, they're told, oh, well, you know, I've got to make sure you get yourself a career. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the idea of going to drama school seems to be a little bit scary to some people. Did you, did you have a plan or what was your pathway I, through to a professional I, career? I think for me, I was sort of quite a peculiar person. It probably really helped me that I was in an environment where people took kind of punts as I said before so you ended up just thrust into situations that were kind of unusually testing because they were kind of sizable so you were going you were you were kind of learning to trust yourself quite early on because you were doing things at quite a big scale so if you were built like I was they gave you confidence because you were going oh, I can do that I can do this I did this you know I got, I got trusted to do this and I did this so therefore I can do this but it wasn't that I had a plan because I wasn't particularly good at school I sort of th- sort of rolled into college rolled out of college sort of thought I was going to be an actor but I suppose early experiences made me know made me realize that I was a theatre person and yeah people could tell me it's really difficult and you need to work out this better career path but I was just what I was I had no other choice I just I just to my bones only really made sense in that environment you know. So you, did, you didn't ever sort of set out to be, to be involved in theatre? It was just something that just like, felt natural to you? Yeah, I remember, um, I can't remember what happened. I remember like early formative things, you know, you, you, I remember being a bit of a raconteur at a family party when I was 10 and someone said, oh, you should go to RADA. <laughs> and I didn't know what that meant. And years later I taught at RADA and directed at RADA, but I didn't know what that meant. It was just an abstract idea that people trained in the theatre or there was a career in the theatre. I didn't know that. And then that led me towards the stuff we did together as a consequence of something kind of a bit chaotic. And then really every job I've ever done has been a kind of consequence of that chaos and fundamental drive because it was the only thing that ever really felt right. So you just keep holding on and you learn if people doubt you, it doesn't really make any difference because you've got no choice because it is what you are. Did you? So you never had any kind of family expectation of what you were supposed no, to do there no, was never no, any no, kind no. of no, this is what we want for you or whatever it wasn't a billy Elliot upbringing but they definitely weren't pushing for me to do the theater my family were quite proud when like certain things appeared on buses that was always a moment of like oh you know you've achieved something when you got to 16 you know 17 yeah, 18 yeah, yeah, and you yeah. left college what what did you actually practically do in a yeah, to be I, able to forge a career so, so i was really lucky actually in the sense that you know, drama school is very hard to get into and can be very expensive. And when I left university, when I left college, there was good alternatives outside of drama school. So for working class kids within the university sector that were drama degrees within universities that you could get within a university's fee structure, which is much cheaper than drama school at the time, um, but offered 38 hours a week practical skills classes. So I went to Bretton Hall and it was just the most, un- and it doesn't exist anymore, because a lot of those places don't exist anymore. This was part of it was part of Leeds University at the time. Well, Leeds had just bought it as part of a thing that eventually closed it, but but it had existed long before Leeds, uh, and it was an arts college really that 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 had a sculpture course, an acting course, a dramaturgy course, which is a very new word, which was basically the, the kind of development and study of new plays and it was, I remember queuing up I'd auditioned for drama schools 
remember queuing up for Broughton Hall and in the in my line of kids auditioning there was two boys whose dads were coal miners or had been coal miners me who my dad was a painter decorator someone else who'd come from come from the Brit school in Croydon but I was a working class kid and that was very different to my experience when I'd been auditioning at drama schools so I went to Bretton Hall and that was just amazing and and and, and very centered on not really the industry but you as an artist and as a maker so it's a very empowering place and at the same time I'd come back in the summers and do bits with Phil uh, and then in, I, set up a, I set up a company there and gradually in the company it started to become clear that even though none of us was the nominated director I was bossing everyone around so I might be the director I didn't know then that, were, that was the case I just was just telling everyone what to do because someone had to do it directed this East for Phil's company in between terms between my second and my third year and I was like oh I might be a director now and, and that gradually evolved and I left and uh, as soon as I left, I did a panto for Phil, and I was like, oh, I'm a director, and I think went to work on cruise ships straight after doing that, m- madly, directing musicals and touring the world and pantos and cabarets. And then thought, oh, I'm a director. It was lovely, it was travelling and good money and, you know, felt good. And then and then I did a master's at Mount View, and then that led to me getting offers to go to the RSC and then one thing leads to the other and then before you know it you've stuck around long enough and now it's mad I'm 20 years in I see a lot of children that, that, that come through the theatre school they get to a certain age and, and you can you know that there's there's a parental pressure to say you have to have achieved you have to do something you have to make something of your life did you find that because you didn't get that that meant you were able to just sort of try different things out and get yeah, were you ever feeling as if somebody was looking over your shoulder and going no, why haven't you no. got a proper job michael well i mean occasionally like people would go i hope my family would be like what do you mean you know you're just sort of thinking <laughs> having ideas you know it's obviously a very confusing thing if if your parents are getting up at 6am to go you know build a house you know so there is a definite thing that the arts are harder to measure for families that don't work in the arts where the effort is but now they really realise oh my god the hours you do are yeah, unbelievable yeah. but there wasn't a pressure and I think you know uh, it's different like if you're going to be a sports person there is a huge level of expression right but also this, the there is a lot of repetition and discipline and structure that goes into the ability to then express yourself you know, if you're a violin player you've got to do a lot of repetition in order to be able to then feel free if you are a, a ballet dancer, there's a lot of like physical work, you know, rigor you have to do before you can express. In some respects, acting and directing kind of work in the opposite. That the first way in is freedom. That you kind of need a kind of, uh, and it gets harder to do, to make work when you get older because the more you know, the more restricted you become. But you kind of need to have the confidence to just chuck yourself at something mm-hmm. with. Um, naive abandon and then you on top of that work really really hard to add rigor and structure and whatever so i was under kind of completely no pressure to attain something because what would that even look like it doesn't it's no you know it's so hard to measure what looking good in my job or, or, or being good in my job look like to anyone around me so you just sort of stumble into it and think you're in the right and think that you've got something to say and you just do it. Mm-hmm. So in that way, you just need to be really free and confident. And then to get really good at it, you take that freedom and confidence, you try and add skill to it. And what's funny is 
probably I have less confidence than when I was 20 years old but I am 20 times more skillful. Right, yeah. And now I'm struggling to find, you, you work to find the balance. But but yeah, there was no pressure. I just stumbled in and just charged at it and thought I was in the right and thought I had something to say and thought my voice could be heard and thought I had opinions that were instinctively less boring than other opinions. I want to speak a little bit about mental health. It's something that's, um, that's quite important to me as a mental health first aider, uh, but also something that I'm fully aware of in running the theatre school with regards to seeing how young people uh, tend to struggle with their mental health, perhaps more than, uh, certainly than, than, than my generation did when we were younger. And I don't know what the situation is, is like with yourself. So I suppose, first of all, the question is kind of, how's, how's your mental health within, within this industry, Michael? With the, within the industry, it's quite tough because you're a freelancer, so you're permanently chasing money and you're permanently feeling unstable because you're chasing money and there's a lot of unsurety. There's a lack of surety is probably the best way to say it. So that can be hard because obviously a, good, a, uh, a way of sustaining good mental health is on some level uh, mooring yourself in things that are consistent. So the one thing I love about the job is that it's diverse one thing that's really hard about it is that it's diverse so you're constantly sort of shifting and that can be a strain mm-hmm. but what I've sort of found is in the midst of all of that the more that I can create my own regularity and my own sort of stability that helps so I will make sure I can kind of do my best to fit in exercise when I'm busy and do my best to eat better and I was going to say what talk. helps what what, yeah, what, what, what yeah. practical steps do you take to yeah, if to you improve can, your if mental you can, health fi- find the time for exercise find the time to communicate about things that aren't to do with the thing you're working on and a good diet not lose your sense of humour yeah if you can do those four things you're largely alright I think we probably live in a bit of a I've been working in drama schools and I'd say progressively over the last 10 15 years year on year it's got harder for people a lot more disassociation a lot more anxiety a lot more sense of overwhelm and various different theories on why that is some people say it's you start to hit the generations that were raised entirely on social social media understand yeah well understanding the way they socialize with the world or interact with the world via a screen yeah so a lack of eye contact Mm mm-hmm being a fundamental unmooring thing but definitely from about 2016 to today i'd say that there there had been a gradual ramping up of struggles because before the pandemic Hmm. um and it's strange though because largely pandemic aside the world is a bit safer than it was statistically speaking it's a safer safer more comfortable richer place for most people more tolerant in a lot of metrics and most metrics it is less yeah but the sense that it isn't is far greater Mm -hmm. and that's tough that's tough young people thank you so much for your time we're going to finish now with uh what will become known as four final questions so uh these can be fairly swift answers but i'm just going to ask you four final questions the first one being what is your favorite phoenix memory there was a little boy He's not a little boy anymore. Called William Eden, <laughs> who we were auditioning for the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, and at the audition, no, not that one, Wizard of Oz, the Wizard of Oz got a Lion in it, and he walked in with a stripy red jumper 
I'd say he was like a, th- a foot tall. He was just <laughs> for the Lullaby Blue. And he walked in with Lord of the Rings action figures. Yeah. And because he was so young and so free, now he walked past the registrar for the audition, didn't walk onto the stage to audition, but just came straight over and sat next to us to show us his action figures. And the reason that's my favourite Phoenix memory is because for that, that you know, the sort of just complete open <laughs> lad, that led to him then doing something. And he, he came and did a little play with me at the RSC, actually, when he was a young lad, and he was in Oliver and various things. He was in Cameron McIntosh's Oliver. He yeah, played Gavroche with, with, with in my, with, uh, Les Mis with, in the West End. With my mate Rupert, you know, you know, and, and he did some stuff. And, and, and But it all came out of complete, like, unknowing, oh, we're here with a group of people, and I'm charismatic and young, and oh, look at my Aragon figure. And then as a consequence of, of that complete, unabashed, unaware thing, he was there, you know, and he's doing things. Okay. Best piece of theatre you've ever seen? Oh, gosh. If you had to pick one. If I had to pick one, it would probably be the RSC. Years and years and years and years ago, they did a production of The Crucible at the West End, directed by Dominic Cook, starring in England. And I was thinking, gosh, this is the first time in live performance I've been near something that is elite. Fantastic. Worst piece of theatre you've ever seen? Oh, yeah. So when we was at Bretton Hall, we used to um, have to, in our third year, uh, write our own one-person shows and perform them. And a person from my year probably hadn't done much work. And, and, I, and I know it was the worst piece of theatre I've ever seen because I just remember watching them speak a monologue that I did not understand. I didn't know what they were saying. And I, was, I felt like I was hallucinating because I thought they were speaking in another language. But it wasn't that they were speaking another language. It was just that I did not understand what they were saying. I, I, I felt profoundly menaced by how bad it was. <laughs> when I make work, sometimes I still think, am I doing something that sounds like it's in a foreign language? I think that all the yeah, time. It that haunts still me lives with you. 23 years later. Yeah. Okay, and very finally, what is the one piece of advice you would give to anyone wanting to create a successful career in theatre? Uh, don't worry about notions of success because it's so hard to measure in the end what success will feel like will be what in the moment makes you feel happy and that could be you know you do a few days work a year in the art or you do a year's work you know you work all year or you get this one bit of telly or you don't get any telly but you get this lovely bit of theatre or you do community don't try and measure it really because uh, if you try and measure it based upon anyone else's standards other than your own happiness it's just impossible and also don't seek approval because you'll always be disappointed so if you want to be reassured by people that what you're doing is good uh, nothing they ever say will be enough but the one negative thing you get back will be enough to put you off so just don't ask really do it for you and as long as it makes you fulfilled if not happy that's enough fantastic thank you michael fentiman thank you very much indeed for your time that was the first ever episode of spread your wings and fly the phoenix podcast and hopefully we will be back very soon with more phoenix alumni thank you very much spread your wings and fly the phoenix podcast was conceived written and presented by philip dale and produced by kevin ford